0: We live in a country that desires security. You consider, for example, how much our country spends on a national level in our uh, national budget on defense. Every uh, year, how much as a nation we spend on national security. Uh, We spend an incredible percentage of, of all of our revenue on security. In our own lives, we are obsessed with security. Uh, we invest money in cars that have alarms, in homes that have alarms. We invest our finances in a way that they can be secure. We, we invest so that we will have financial security. Uh, we want our identities to be secured, so we perhaps pay uh, and invest in companies' life Like LifeBlock or Complete ID. We want to make sure no one steals our identity. We want to feel secure. Um, We often want to feel secure when we use our electronic gadgets. So we have uh, oftentimes multiple uh, authentication. Uh, So one of the things fascinating enough uh, with phones, you have to authenticate it twice. You have to like, your password is not sufficient anymore. You have to actually do your password plus something else. There is a desire in our culture to be secure. We, we get obsessed with it. We want to make sure we're safe and secure in all ways, in all, all manners, whether it be financially, as a country, whether it be in our own homes. We want to be safe. But what we see is that when we have a growing desire to be safe and secure and we find safety in the things around us, what happens is, is we have a growing desire to not find security in God. That is that the more we want to be secure, the more we invest in security, what that reveals is that we are rather insecure about the world we live in. In Mark's Gospel, we encounter someone just like that. Someone who felt pretty secure. He had placed his security in his stuff. He had found safety and warmth and, and, and really security in all the wrong places. We're going to think particularly this morning about how you and I can be tempted to that same kind of thing in our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we've been considering in Mark's Gospel uh, Jesus' travel towards Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has been uh, teaching His disciples and sharing with them uh, about what it looks like to follow Him. And so if you ever wondered what does a Christian look like or what does it mean to follow Jesus, well, these verses in Mark's Gospel are central to answer that question. In fact, all that we would say is really Kind of founded right here in Mark 10 and Mark chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And so, really, all of Christianity and understanding what it means to follow Jesus is really right here. And the early church used these verses to help paint the picture of what a follower of Jesus looked like. Just a reminder as we read God's word this morning, we think about these passages that Peter is the one who is giving the stories to Mark. So where did Mark get his info from? Where did did he get the details of this particular story we're going to read? We got it from Peter, the Apostle Peter. Remember remember Peter, the Apostle, the fisherman, uh, the guy who led the church, right there? This is who Mark is getting this information from. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark delivers it to us this morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I've done for my youth. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God it is not. For all things are possible with God. And the last first. As Christians, we do not look to our own goodness or obedience to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. That's the point of this passage. Jesus here is confronting uh, this man's desire to enter in the kingdom of God by another way. Only God's grace is sufficient to gain eternal life. God provides the grace in Christ. Therefore, our response, like children, is to trust in the gospel. We find confidence because our inheritance is solely dependent on the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus outlines in this passage the radical demands of discipleship. Following Jesus will mean giving up everything in your life. Following Jesus will will mean that you abandon all things and embrace solely Jesus. That it isn't Jesus plus you and your junk, but it's Jesus alone that is the foundation of your salvation. In Christ, we give up everything of this world to gain everything in the kingdom of God. So we're going to think about this morning. And I want to organize our thoughts really around the three questions that we saw in the passage, and really you could say even the three characters that we were. Uh, uh, confronted by. First, the first sort of question uh, was the rich young ruler's question of what can I do to inherit eternal life? The second was Jesus's question. Uh, Jesus' question. Jesus and his response to that man uh, and his question is, why do you call me good? And then thirdly the disciples' wonderful question, you have to love them, well then who can be saved? Who can be saved? If the demands are so high, who then can be saved? So we're going to think about those three questions. Hopefully that will serve to help understand what this passage means. Mark tells us that Jesus was traveling and as he was setting out on his journey, uh, Jesus had been stopping at villages along his way uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus will be entering into Jerusalem shortly in a few weeks for us. uh, But uh, what we often celebrate on Palm Sunday uh, the triumphal entry. We're going to be coming to that passage shortly. So if you will, just think in your mind, if you remember, you know, sort of back to Easter, you know, triumphal entry, the resurrection, all, all the things, the passion in between. That's where we're at. We're just, we're, we're months ahead of that. So Jesus is sort of descending, sort of drawing near to the cross of, Christ, of Calvary. He's, he's drawing near to that. And as he goes, he's going to town and he's sharing. What is he sharing? He's telling them about the kingdom of God. He's saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. That's what he's saying. And so this rich young ruler, perhaps you've heard about Jesus. Um, We call him a ruler because in Luke's gospel, he calls him a ruler. And so we're kind of putting together what Luke reports and what Mark reports. Matthew has this exact same narrative. Uh, Matthew follows uh, closely with Mark. Uh, Luke follows very closely with Mark with, with just minor uh, adjustments, so perhaps because of where they got their stories from, Mark getting his story from Peter, and then Matthew and Luke getting their story from primarily from Mark, but then also perhaps from other eyewitnesses, other disciples, Matthew. Uh, Matthew was there. Uh, and so uh, Matthew reports his own thing. And so as you think about the parallel gospels, uh, they kind of give us little clues that perhaps we've missed here. in Mark dealt round round out the story. And so we know that this man is a rich rich man. But he's not only rich, but he's he's also a ruler. He, he's influential. He's powerful. This man has power and he's got money, right? Which often goes together, right? You have power. You have money. You have power. Uh, in uh, in here in Mark's gospel, he says in verse twenty two that he has. Great possessions. So, so Mark doesn't call him a rich ruler, young ruler, or a rich young man like, um, like uh, our, our ESV Bibles have in the little heading there. But in verse 22, he says that he has great possessions. He's got a lot of stuff in his life. We don't know really how much that is. I think that's intentional, right? Because if there was a dollar amount there, what would we do? We would qualify ourselves. We would we would we would position ourselves according to how much he had. We don't really know, but we we know that this man was wealthy. He was rich. Uh, Luke tells us that he was very rich. So uh, he wasn't just you know he wasn't just the rich guy. He was the really rich guy. You know. He wasn't, he wasn't just the little guy. He was the big guy. And so, uh, so we want to see that this man wasn't like giving up a few things. Jesus was calling this man to give up a lot of stuff. Not just a few dollars, but perhaps in our day, millions and billions of dollars. And what we see here is a man's desire to find righteousness in himself. Notice the question that he asked Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He goes to him. He kneels before him. He's perhaps learned about Jesus, maybe he heard some of his sermons, and there he is and he asks Jesus, good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now on the surface, that question seems quite natural. It seems like, you know, hey, that's, that's a pretty good question. In fact, if you really think about it, no one has asked that question yet. Not any of his disciples have even asked that question. Like, hey, how do we get into heaven you ever fascinated by that? But the fact that, you know, as Christians, we, I hear that question a lot. You know, how do we get into heaven, all those kind of things. But no one who heard Jesus regularly even asked that question. Not even his ding-dong disciples, right? They didn't ever ask that question. They weren't even, they weren't even asking about how they could get eternal life. But here comes this ruler, and he wants to know, hey, how do I get in on eternal life? But notice what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why? This man and the use of the word there of inherit. Notice here he's using language that would have been very familiar to him. Uh, He probably didn't get his riches. You know, it wasn't a rags to riches story. Perhaps we don't know. Uh, but most likely, he inherited much of his wealth and then reinvested it and grew and got bigger and bigger, just like many wealthy people. They're not wealthy because they, you know they sort of invest and boom, they hit the they hit the lottery. But rather, it's sort of a family thing. It it continued along. It's a to passing down and this inheritance. He wants to know, like, hey, how do I get in on this inheritance? So he's halfway true. But what we see here is a desire to find righteousness in his works. And the reason why we know that is because the way Jesus responds to him. What does Jesus say? Notice what Jesus says. He says, do you know the commandments? Or you know the commandments, right? Like, hey, you know those, right? Uh, Oh, yeah, I've kept every one of those from my youth. And so what we see is this man is posturing himself in such a way as to see that it is his righteousness that will inherit him eternal life. What he wants to ultimately find out is, did I do enough good deeds to inherit this eternal life? Matthew records the question this way: "What good deeds must I do? So that sort of flushes out sort of his intent, doesn't it? What kind of good things do I need to do to get into heaven? Right. Perhaps it's a question you've asked yourself or maybe heard others ask. Hey, what do we got to do? What kind of good things we got to do? You know, how many old ladies we got to walk across the street to get into heaven? You know, how much money do we got to give to the church? You know, how many you know, nice gestures do we need to do in order to get into heaven? How do we get in? What do I got to do? And Jesus responds to him with a prodding and poking and stabbing question. Jesus, in his question, blows up this entire man's worldview. He destroys what this man believes and undermines everything he thought was true. Brothers and sisters, how are we tempted, like this young man, to look inwardly for our security in eternal life? How do we look at our possessions and our stuff and look and feel secure? This man was secure in his stuff. This man was confident in the things he had. We know that because he he was very upset when Jesus confronts him and asks him to give everything up. This man had found safety. What, What he trusted in most was himself rather than God. And Jesus responds with this question, Why do you call me good? what do you mean i mean that's not wrong what's wrong with calling jesus good jesus is good right jesus is a good guy i mean man he did a lot of good stuff why well, why is jesus upset with calling him good well in this particular culture no one would have called a teacher very rarely good uh, only god was good as jesus responds in in his question no one is good except god alone. Or a better translation is the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates this. uh, uh, God, no one is good except the one God. So there's no one good except for one. There's only one person that's good. That's what he means. There's only one person that's good, and that one person is God. And so the question he's asking really is, are you willing to call me God? Have you come to the place in your life Where you're willing to say, I'm God. And if we look further into the story in verse 20, we see that this man is not. Where he says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. This man is struggling with understanding what is good and what is bad. For this man, he thought that he could find goodness in himself. He thought that his obedience to the law would be the basis for his inheritance of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is trying to attack. What Jesus is trying to undermine is the fact this man thought he could be good enough. So he goes through in verse 19. So, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept for my youth. Now, you might question that. I, I mean, I know you, I saw some head nods like, oh, you know, this guy's prideful. But in reality, that could be true. And In a sense, this man could have been a very godly and moral man. And he may have not done any of those things. Maybe he was telling the truth. He, he has kept these things. But what Jesus was exposing here is that the law is insufficient to save. The law is insufficient to save. And Jesus, in verse 21, demonstrates His love for sinners. His love for you and I when we are captivated by the things of this world. Look at what He says. And Jesus, looking at Him, loved Him. That's the agape love of God, isn't it? He loved Him. He looked at him and he loved him. Why does does Mark say that? Why why that? I mean, he could have just said he looked at him and he said to him, but but he says he loved him. What is it that that he loved so much? Well, what he loved was that he didn't want to see this man captured as a prisoner to his stuff. What this man couldn't see about himself was that he was in prison by his money. He was imprisoned by his possessions, and he couldn't see it. This man was, was, was really in a bad place, and he thought everything was good. Preacher, I've kept everything. I've done good. I'm a good person. And Jesus looks at him with love, and he says, no. What we see in this passage is this love of Jesus. This is an expression of Jesus' love. Jesus' words to this man, though they seem radical and very weird and obscure and difficult for us, are a radical call to discipleship. Jesus was trying to show this man what had captured his heart. His stuff had taken the place of God in his life. He found safety and security in those things rather than in God. He knew that this man was trapped And he was offering him the way out. When Jesus confronts our sin, he isn't doing it because he doesn't love us. He is doing it because he loves us. When the conviction of the Spirit overwhelms us in our sin, it isn't because God is punishing us like he's spanking us or something. No, he's saying, I love you. Wake up from this sin. what we see here is Jesus is loving this man by radically calling him to give up everything for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When we find self-sufficiency and independence from God in our stuff, we are in big trouble. This is why Jesus will in a moment, as we'll consider, warn us about money and about possessions because we can find a greater self-sufficiency in that stuff look let's be honest i'm sure in a crowd even this size there are many who live day to day or paycheck to paycheck week to week and you know those weeks where you know you're you're scraping by with pennies you're on your knees crying out to god god Help me or I'm going to starve. But if you're like me and things are well and the bank account isn't in the negative, you're not praying, God, get me through my day. Everything's fine. I don't need to depend on God. i got my money to depend on. I'm depending on my money, not God. And so what we often do is we find safety and security in our stuff and ultimately independence from God. May we see this warning. Or perhaps you this morning captured by your possessions. You know, it's hard to really get specific because for so many it's really relative. Relative to who you are and what you think is important. Whether you have a house full of stuff or a bank account full of stuff or or other, other things. And we'll consider in a moment that possessions are not inherently wrong. Jesus is clear about that. But I think what I want you to consider this morning is where is your value? For this man, he found value in his stuff. He valued the things of his life as more important and of greater value than the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We're not quite sure how to translate disheartened, so if you have a different translation, perhaps it's a sad or dejected. Clearly this man was not, didn't receive what he came for that day, did he? Clearly this man was, was being poked and prodded in, in a way he had never been in his life. No one had ever confronted this sin. But our sovereign Savior looked right into his soul and saw what was on the throne. And this man was saddened. How are you saddened when you lose things? How is it that you are saddened when things are gone in your life? I pray that we would hear this warning this morning. That our soul is more valuable than our stuff. That our soul is more valuable than what we can amass in this world. And as I said earlier, this is not a rich man's problem only, but also a poor man. Because those who are poor can also make idols of money. They can be convinced that if I just had more money more stuff, then I would be happy. Then I would feel safe. Then everything would be good in my life. If I could just pay one bill on time, I think I would be happy. Well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to pay bills on time. But finding security in those things. Finding joy and happiness in those things. Brothers and sisters, may we be reminded that there is not one thing in this world, not one thing in this world, Not one thing. I just want to emphasize not one thing that will capture your heart like Jesus. Every other thing of this world is fleeting. Like sand through the hands. They will not last. Consider Moses in Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, if you want something to think about today, oh, sit and think about Moses there. Moses was the richest dude in the world. At that time, Moses was the most wealthy man in the world and he left it all behind because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking forward to his reward. He knew the reward in eternity was bigger than anything that Pharaoh could amass. Greater than any Anything. reward of heaven is greater than anything you and I can amass. Our souls are infinitely more valuable than the junk in our lives. And we have to see these things. Notice, Moses saw that they were fleeting. He said no. He recognized that possessions and stuff would not ever satisfy his soul. And as Christians... as as Christians in America, we need to wake up. Because materialism is running rampant in the church. Not let alone in society. When we are captivated by the commercials we see, and we are told that that's what we need in life, we are being deceived and lied to. Brothers and sisters, we must see the things of this world are fleeting and will never nor ha- were they meant to satisfy your soul. Let's move on to this last question, verses 23 through 31. Jesus is asked the question who then can be saved. And it's a question prompted by what Jesus says in verses 23 through 25. In verse 23, Jesus says some pretty radical stuff here this morning. He says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he says again, children, it is difficult, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so difficult? Well, as we've already mentioned, riches and wealth lead to self-dependency, self-sufficiency. And independence from God. Now, I want to be so clear. Is Jesus saying that money is bad? It's not what he's saying. God uses the resources we have to further the work of his kingdom. To send missionaries and, and to pay salaries and to have buildings that we can preach the gospel in. No, resources are not wrong, but it's where they take position in our hearts and lives. Do, are, they, are they the most important thing? Money ruins our soul because it creates a deceptive dependency upon stuff. We're deceived to think that everything is good in our lives. We, we're deceived to think, that brothers and sisters, this is why we must fight. I mean, really fight against prosperity preaching. This is why I am so adamant to preach against prosperity gospel preachers. Because they are deceiving you into thinking that the blessings of the Old Testament are applied to today. They're not only misinterpreting Scripture, they're deceiving you into your relationship with God. They're they're making you think that your your bank account is somehow connected to your relationship with God. Your bank, bank account has nothing to do with you and Jesus. And So stop watching them. Turn it off. Don't listen to Joel Osteen. Don't listen to that garbage. Don't listen to Creflo Dollar. Don't listen to you know, half that stuff on TBN. I don't want to say all of it because sometimes, weirdly, they, uh, they're confused. Look, uh, just don't, don't. For your own soul's sake, stay away from that stuff. Because it will only ruin your heart. But why were the disciples so scandalized by Jesus' words? Why was it that they were so astonished and very astonished? Well, because they loved money. Jesus uses this story and this 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 real event that happened in his ministry to teach his disciples then and us now about the dangering allures of stuff. Remember the disciples? They love position, don't they? Remember them arguing earlier about, hey, who's the greatest? We're going to see in a couple of weeks, James and John, man, they really outdo even that. They're like, hey, man, we want to sit on the throne. We want to be king. We want to be, yeah, like, can we can, we like, we think we can run the kingdom with you. Like, can we have part in that? And, and uh, so these disciples loved position and power, and most of them, not all of them, were wealthy. Most of them had significant, a uh, fisherman uh, in that day. An owner of a fishing company, you know, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, their father, owning a fishing business there in Galilee, uh, would have been very prominent and wealthy. Peter owned his own boat. He had cash, right? The dude was wealthy. You didn't, have, you didn't own your own boat unless you had money. Uh, Matt, Matthew, you know, we know what he did, right? He was skimming off the top and he was stealing money from people, Right? And so, so so, what we see here is that these disciples were the ones that really Jesus was poking. And their desire to find the most important of the world. And again, that's a theme that we've seen in the context of these last several weeks that we often look to the great, great things of the world. We look to the rich and the powerful and we're like, oh, that's who God needs in his kingdom. That's who he needs. And we're reminded in the scripture reading this morning that no God is glorified in our weaknesses, not in our strength. God isn't looking for you to be strong. He's looking for you to be a weakling. He looks. He's looking for you to give up and say, i got to let God run my life. If not, I can't do it. And so it's about giving up us and our power, not finding our wisdom and strength, but rather saying, hey, God chose what is weak in the world to despise the strong. Look, if you are called by Christ and, and elected to salvation, you're a weakling. So am I. We just have to get real about that in our lives. He did not call us unto salvation because we are great. Because rather he is great. And so what we see here in Jesus' illustration, that it is very difficult to go to heaven. It ain't easy. In fact, Jesus says it's impossible. It's impossible for men. And he tells us this illustration in verse 25, which, by the way, and I'm only missing this very briefly because it's been so mishandled and misinterpreted over the years. I think it's helpful just to clarify in your mind. Uh, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you perhaps have heard some fanciful story in your life as Christian about how there's some gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the needle's eye. That is not true, and it is not historical. Um, i so sorry. Uh, to burst your bubble there. Um, Jesus literally meant uh, a needle, and he literally meant a camel going through a needle. Um, That is not possible. Uh, That was common... Um, that, that there's there's other in Near Eastern cultures that same kind of thing. They would say like an elephant going through a needle, so and so forth. So this was a common kind of way, common illustration, common hyperbole of Jesus's day to communicate the impossibility. And in fact, in Arab countries today, this same exact phraseology is used. So what Jesus is saying isn't about some fanciful thing about a camel being humbled and going through a, through a gate, but rather about a camel being squeezed through a needle and how that just doesn't even sound right and sounds impossible. Exactly. That's the point. It's impossible. It is impossible, Jesus is saying, the impossibility of inheriting the kingdom of God apart from the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what he says in verse 27. With things, with these things, with with man, it's impossible. With God, it is not. For all things are possible with God. And so, what Jesus again is undermining is our desire to find security in us, whether it be our stuff or our self righteousness, our goodness, and our obedience. Like, hey, I'm really a, I, you know, I obey the law. I. I that is why I, 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 well, that is why putting Ten Commandments on the wall just aren't helpful. Because people are not made more, you know, all we're trying to do is clean people up to go to hell. And that is not helping them at all. What we need to post on the wall is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you're saved by grace alone through Christ alone. Not through the law. The law came after grace and after salvation. Remember the law came after the Israelites had already been saved. So grace came before law. But what we see here is that following Jesus is radically difficult and it is costly. Jesus says to his disciples, "Look, if you don't give up everything, you can't follow me." We've heard that before, but what we see here, Peter responding here in verse 28, and I just want to look right here to sort of camp out here for just a moment. Peter began to say to him, "See, we've left everything and followed." Peter didn't quite grasp the gospel just yet. He didn't quite grasp all the implications of the gospel, but he was beginning to see that that following Jesus demands radical changes in our life. These men. Left everything behind. They left left their wealth, they left their families and children to follow Jesus these three years. But Jesus comforts them. Look what he he does to comfort them in verse 29. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, that is, a hundred percent back, now, in this time. I want you to see, look at it. He says, right now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Giving up stuff now means that we get stuff now. Maybe perhaps you've, you've had the experience of losing family members in the sense of relationally because of your following of Christ. Maybe you've lost children relationally because of your desire to follow Jesus. Maybe you have lost uh, other relationships in your life. Clearly these Christians that Mark is writing to in Rome would have faced these things. They would have been uh, sent out of their homes and villages. They would have lost their jobs because they were following Jesus. Christians today around the world lose their homes, lose their families, lose their possessions because they're following Jesus. But Jesus gives him a promise here, doesn't he? Look, if you give up stuff now, you will receive stuff now. What does he mean when he says you will receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands in this age? What he means is, is that you'll be brought into a family adopted into a family where now you have brothers and sisters in Christ? Look, brothers and sisters, I can travel all over the United States and you go to a church that preaches the gospel and you feel at home. You, you, you sit next to a brother in Christ who you've never met before and they you just feel at home with them. They're a brother in Christ. You, you have this like love for them that I don't even know you and I love you. This is what Jesus is saying here. but We must not shy away from Jesus' words here. That following Jesus is costly. It's difficult and it's hard. It's not easy. We should never ever tell someone, oh, it's going to be an easy road, now you're following Jesus. No, Jesus says you're going to lose a lot of stuff if you want to follow me. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. Mark Twain once wrote, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts I understand that keep me up at night. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you see the power of God here to save. Who can save? God alone. Salvation is not dependent on us, but upon Christ alone. And so where you need to put your trust today is not in your stuff or in your goodness, in your obedience to the law, but solely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to see here a promise to claim that you have both now and then all things you need. Both now and then. Anything you lose for the sake of Christ and the gospel, it's okay. God can replace it. Anything you lose here in this life, God will give you more in the life to come. We must recognize that following Christ is going to cost us some things. Annie Dillard tells of the ill-fated Franklin Expedition to the Atlantic in 1845. This expedition was meant to uh, explore the Arctic and find more things. But it was a very famous story because it was well publicized what happened. Uh, the, the ship was ultimately wrecked. But as the ship was making preparations to leave, uh, they, they really had this obsession was quite, quite incredible. Uh, they, they put things on the ship that would have been more suitable for like a, a Royal Navy ship. They put things on the ship uh, like a large library, a hand organ, China place settings, uh, cut glass wine goblets, and, and sterling silver flatware instead of adding additional coal for their journey. The ornate silver flatware was engraved with the individual offers, officer's initials and family crest. When search parties went out to go find the, the ship after it had, after it had wrecked, they, they began to find things that were quite strange. They, they found clumps of body uh, there that were walking together. Uh, when the supplies ran out, they, they began to go out and find supplies. They could kind of piece together what happened after the crash. And one of the things that had happened, uh, one of the things they found was skeletons that wore fine blue cloth uniforms edged with silk braid, hardly to match the the extreme climates that they were in. Uh, Another apparently chose to carry with him the place settings of of fine silver as he went to find food. What must have he been thinking as he was taking that that, that silver with him as he was looking for food? And as we think about the silliness of that, a true story. One of the things we have to see is that our hanging on to things that are ultimately useless will look no less foolish to us in eternity. I often say if you would just think about your problems right now, the things that have you distressed right now today, and if you're a Christian, you think about that problem that you're having right now, that difficulty, how will you view that in a trillion years? How will you view that particular issue in one trillion years from now in eternity? Oh, it will look foolish to you that you spent so much time thinking about it and worried about it. Many cannot envision life without the things they cherish. And they're in danger of losing the only life that counts. What are you captured by today? Is it your possessions? Is it your people? Your stuff, your influence. What is it that get, that you can't give up to follow Jesus? What is it that you say, Jesus, you're just not enough for me. I have to have this in my life. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you glory and praise. And we pray that this word would bear fruit in our lives. Father, awaken us to the sin of materialism and idolatry. Finding security in our possessions. Father, may we see the warnings here clearly in Your Word that this rich young man went away. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he ever turned back and gave up everything to follow Christ. Father, You are calling us to give up things in our lives. There are things that we hold on to that we cherish more than we cherish You. And I pray that You would awaken our souls by the power of Your Spirit that you would expose these things in our hearts. Let us live and find sufficiency in Christ alone and not in the things of this world. We give you glory. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. Peter